Hello, welcome into the podcast. My name's Confirmation San, and I'm here with my co-host Atreya. Hey. And today we're going to be talking about the Birkenhair murders. For a little bit of context, we'll just talk about what was happening at the time. So, during this time, there was an explosion in medical knowledge and practices. The medicine was becoming what it is now, today, and there was three pioneer in centres, especially with the study of anatomy, which were Edinburgh, Leiden in the Netherlands and Padua in Italy. So in Edinburgh, there was a few leading doctors, but the the ones that stand out were Alexander Munro, John Goodsir and Robert Knox. And they all went on to have outstanding contributions to the medical uh, profession. So while this it was there was this explosion, they obviously needed cadavers to work on. But because of religious stigma, bodies weren't given over to the medical industry to be operated on or dissected on after death because the, the thought was that if you if you weren't whole, you couldn't enter the kingdom of heaven and you'd go to hell and it was it was very much stigmatized. So, in 1752, to try and dissuade the, uh, the act of murder, and with, I quote, some further terror and peculiar mark of infamy be added to the punishment of death, this allowed for hanged criminals to be used for dissection. So basically, they were that scared of being dissected, they tried to use it uh, uh, to try and stop murder going on which was uh, on the rise so basically what happened was this made physicians on a par with the hangman as he he was he was that feared when (laughs) even before the body was lowered at the hangings there'll be medical students and medical professors all arguing and haggling over uh, who who gets the potty and who gets to uh, take it up get and cut it up so fights and riots at public hangings were were very common because obviously the families of the hung person the families of relatives and friends didn't want to hand the body over to what they saw as butchers basically Uh, and on a lot of occasions the crowd kind of overwhelmed the prison officers there and the police there and they took the body by force and buried it so it was kind of one of the reasons why they stopped public hangings and it was moved from Tyburn which is in London to behind the London Newgate prison makes sense yeah exactly because they just couldn't control the crowd It, it was that much of a stigma to be uh, caught up after death and to be honest with you when I got my first uh, donor card my mother almost had a fit because she, she actually used the words you can't get into the kingdom of heaven if you're not whole and I looked at her like she was mental well she is. <laughs> but I, yeah it, st- it still affects people today uh, it is my dad is the same as well he refuses to be an organ donor for that same reason it's it's like in his head he can't get into heaven and i'm just like you're dead you're getting caught up you won't be there to really be bothered exactly what does it matter <laughs> you might save somebody's life you, you, you could help so much after death rather yeah. than just being through. but it's 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 the whole the, the 
church has, and maybe, and maybe that's a conversation for another podcast. Uh, yes, yeah. Uh, but in 1826, 592 bodies were dissected, yet in 1831, only 52 people were executed out of a possible 1,600 people. So there was a scarcity of bodies that needed to be dissected. This opened up a criminal enterprise and they were actually had the name the Resurrectionists. They were common body snatchers. So in 1828, there was thought to be over 200 Resurrectionists working in London alone. Oof. Uh, yeah, and it wasn't the London it is today. It was much smaller. There weren't municipal cemeteries. It, they were just small churchyards or paupers' graves, which were in clay fields where they were just piled up on top of each other. One gang, the London Borough Gang, and these supplied London's biggest medical schools. Uh, when St Thomas Hospital refused to pay an extra two guineas for the bodies, the, the gang just cut them off and said, right, well, we won't supply you anymore. In retaliation, the hospital started working with freelancers and the occasional resurrectionist. So what happened was the London Borough Gang stormed the dissecting rooms of St Thomas Hospital, threatened students and started, bizarrely, attacking corpses. <laughs> right. I can only assume that they went in with knives and they were chopping at the corpses because I don't think punching a dead body is going to do much, much. Uh, no. But this was, this was, it, it was kind of, it was organised crime that what this shortage created. So there were two actual methods for removing a body from the ground that the resurrectionists used. What they would do, they would actually dig up the head end of a recent burial plot, uh, break open the coffin by using the, the weight of the soil. So they'd like dig half, half of the plot down and then peel up the lid. They'd put a rope around the body and they would yank the body out of the grave. Now, the thing is, is because a corpse wasn't anybody's property, it wasn't actually illegal to be in possession of one, yet stealing from graves was the actual illegal bit. So yeah. they had they take off the clothes and the jewellery, if they had any on, and leave everything in the grave and then fill the grave back in. Uh, so they could just say, well, I've just found this body. Uh, and have no evidence of the, the <laughs> going back to the grave or the headstone or any identification on the actual body. Uh, the second method, which is quite interesting, they dug a man-sized hole about 20, 20 feet from the head of the grave and then dug diagonally down to intercept the coffin and broke the end of the coffin away and pulled the body back out of the tunnel and this way there'd be no disturbance uh, on, the, on the actual grave site. It'd be 20 feet away. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, because people were onto them, obviously. So they'd, they'd actually have things, like put things on the grave 
to see if it's been messed with. So apparently this is where putting flowers on a grave came from. Ah. It, start, it started around about this time and they put flowers on to see if the flowers have been disturbed of, of any point. Because they used to put herbs on, but that was kind of to mask the smell. Understandably. Rather than, yeah, anything else. So so this is where we kind of get, in, in, in Great Britain certainly, I think this is where it comes from, putting flowers on graves. Uh, Do you think, um, sorry, they had, they, um, they started selling things called mort safes, which was just a cage over the grave, basically, to stop grave diggers. But that's kind of pointless, isn't it? If they're going to dig diagonally down from 20 feet away, the mort safe is therefore rendered pointless. Yeah, so the mort safe was only on top of the actual coffin. Yeah. It only yeah. stopped them from doing the first method. Yeah. Uh, and so if they were going diagonally down, there's nothing stopping them from taking the end off. I think the second method came up because more safe started yes. to be invented. Right, uh, makes sense. And it was just a way to get around it. And I bet they weren't cheap either. <laughs> like, I bet the families forked out a fortune for them things. This is the thing with mort safes as well. What usually would happen was that the church would buy one. Right. And then they'd hire it out to people because it, it was only supposed to be over the grave for six weeks, uh, six to oh. eight weeks. So when the body was decomposed, decomposed. enough. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. So then they'd remove it because it was padlocked. In. But then, so it seems to me, it seems to be bizarre, this idea, because you still, because the way it worked was the mort safe was attached to the coffin. Right, so, okay. So you still have to dig down and unattach it from the coffin. So you still, even, even though they don't want to be cut up, you're still messing with the, 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 the plot of ground and the coffin and, you know, they're not having a peaceful rest. Yeah. Kind of thing. So, so it, it kind of... It's bizarre how they go, oh, yeah, that's a great idea, but not... Not really. Cut bits, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, there was actually societies as well in Scotland that were set up uh, that actually bought these and they hired... They, you could either join as a yearly member uh, and then you, you got you got your turn on the morts. <laughs> or, or, or you could hire it out uh, like, like the church if you were a non-member paying a premium. Or something. It's ingenious the way people like look at an opportunity and try and make money. <laughs> that was genius, yeah. I would definitely agree with that. Something optimistic for you to look forward to. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, so yeah. So that they were the they were the choices that they had. Obviously paupers were more susceptible to being dug up by the resurrectionists yeah. because all they really couldn't afford a mort safe or a mausoleum. They they basically they had two options, which was one, they could either fill the grave with stones rather than soil. So it'd just be but that's just slowing them down, I suppose. Or yeah. li literally just putting the flowers or something over the grave that would be an indication that it's been disturbed but then it, the body's already gone so it was bad times for them i mean there was uh, a price list there was price lists that went round that people had obviously the prices varied on demand the types of corpses unfortunately it wasn't a quality back in them days and men went for more money than women <laughs> uh, uh, but apparently that was just due to musculature uh, and the fact that they had more to 
look at, I suppose. But I don't know if that's actually <laughs> correct. And I'm going to use quote marks now. Freaks went for the most. So right. Well, yeah. Yeah. You can the most out of somebody with rickets or something like that, I guess, can you? Indeed. Or some sort of before me. Yeah. Yeah. There's a there's a story about. A gentleman called Charles Byrne. He was the Irish giant, uh, and he was he was uh, kind of a local celebrity around London. His skeleton measured seven foot seven inches, and wow. he was actually reported to be in life eight foot four inches. Whoa! Yeah, yeah. So he's a big, big old guy, and uh, there was a collector of oddities and rarities, and an amateur dissectionist, that's the word, John Hunter, who knew him and he asked to buy his body and he was so, Charles was so aghast at this, this being put on display and dissected after he died, he begged his friends to uh, bury him at sea in a lead-lined coffin so no one could get to him and they all agreed, they said yeah that's no problem, we'll do that. Uh, unfortunately the Undertaker actually sold him to Hunter for £500. What? And swapped the coffin out for, for stones. Uh, wow. Yeah. The, 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 one of the worst things is he was on after... A few years after all the hubbub had died down of Charles actually dying, because he was a really big celebrity. He was, he was known everywhere. He was seven foot, for God's sake. So, you know, yeah. uh, he, was, he was known everywhere. So after all the hubbub... I died down. He actually stripped his body, uh, John Hunter, and put him on display in his museum. Aw, that's Unf awful. It is, it is. And he's still on display at the Hunterian Museum in London, even though there's been a petition to actually get him buried at sea because it's all he wanted. I mean, OK, he's been on display for 200-odd years, but he just wanted to be at peace, I suppose. Oh, bless him, that's awful. Yeah, yeah. So Good there is guy. actually a petition out there. The, uh, the last article I could find was from 2018. So maybe the article's got... Maybe maybe, maybe they've uh, managed to get him buried at sea, but... Oh, I hope so. Yeah, that's really all he wanted. So all of this is uh, a great bit of information, but it's actually nothing to do with Birkenhair. Because they were never grave robbers. Uh, and this is true. Yeah, the, the stories about them, the ghastly stories about Birkenhead, the grave robbers and the body snatchers, and they didn't dig graves up. Maybe they thought it was too much hard work. Or what? I think that. They were too lazy to be grave diggers, I yeah. think. It's, it's, but it's a, really, it's a really strange story. William Burke, he was born 1792 in County Tyrone to middle-class parents. He had a really comfortable upbringing. Uh, he joined the English Army. He was... He had land, etc., etc. He moved to Scotland after his first marriage broke down. He had an argument with his father-in-law over ownership of land. Uh, when he got to Scotland, he married... Helen MacDougall, whom he affectionately called Nelly, and then he moved to Edinburgh, where he worked as a cobbler, and he was apparently good-humoured and industrious. He'd sing and dance for his clients as he cobbled shoes. <laughs> and then we've got William Hare, who is the polar opposite 
of William Burke by by all accounts. He was born between 1792 and 1804 in County Antrim, Newry or Derry. We don't know. Uh, I think he's, he's, he's been very, he was very shady about his past especially yeah. as he was an Irishman who moved to Scotland. I mean, okay, Celts go to Celtic places, obviously, but in them days, I think it's if you were running away from something, you move that far. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so he moved to Scotland to work on the canals, and over time he moved to Edinburgh and lived in a boarding house, and this was owned and run by a man named Logue. And then as soon as Logue died, he took the opportunity to marry Margaret, his widow. So <laughs> opportunist. Yes, it kind of that's that's a little bit of a feature that tells you about him. He doesn't waste time and if he's got an easy easy way to do very little, I think he'll take it. He, he was just a nasty piece of work in general. Exactly. I mean, he, he was supposed to be illiterate as well, so for somebody who came up with had just quite such a brilliant way of easy money he was illiterate he was violent he was quarrelsome he was just an all-around bit of a dick indeed indeed and even as well margaret has been described as hard a hard featured and a debauched viago uh and i had to viago viago I think it's pronounced, but I had to look it up, and it means scolding, domineering, and highly opinionated woman. So, Hard-faced cow. <laughs> yeah, basically, I think they were meant for each other, kind of thing. Uh, They're not spoiling a couple, are they? No, exactly. Uh, so, the Burke and Hare met while they were working on the harvest in Midlothian, and when they both returned to Edinburgh, Nellie and Burke moved into Hare's boarding house, where this is where... Burke starts to change, starts drinking, partying, getting involved, getting involved in debauchery and stuff. Uh, and he, he was doing so well up until then. I guess he has a bad influence. Exactly, he's a wrongun. He's a wrongun. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> they murdered sixteen people, which is immense. They did it. They only. They. I think there was a year. When they, from when they started to when they were actually caught. Yeah. That they they went through 16. One a month. It's not bad. Uh, the first body was uh, a tenant named Donald who had died owing rent four pounds in rent. He was... Uh, hair was livid. <laughs> I'm and, not surprised. Yeah, four whole pounds. Exactly. Fuming. So uh, <laughs> he, he started to think about ways how he could make money from this dead body that he's got in front of him. So what, what he did on the day of the funeral, they swapped out, Burke and Hare swapped out the body of the coffin and replaced it with a sack of bark. Don't know how bark is easier to get hold of than rock, <laughs> but it, it worked for him. Uh, they went to the medical university and they were actually looking for Dr. Alexander Monroe. But they were given directions to Dr. Robert Knox's office and they were paid £7.10, princely sum of £7.10, which they split. Hare took more because he was owed the rent. Mm -hmm. And while they were on the way out, a medical uh, assistant of Knox's said they would be glad to see thou when they had another to dispose of. 
which immediately got her thinking about this could be a nice little earner for them. They actually got ripped off a little bit, though, seven seven pounds ten shillings because cadavers are actually worth between eight and ten pounds. Um, and this one was relatively fresh. You know, he just dropped down dead, and Hare was like, "Well, let's just sell him." It, in like the space of a day. So this is a relatively fresh cadaver, and it, I think they 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 ripped themselves off a little bit. Indeed, I think. I bargained for higher. To be honest with you, as they sold more bodies, the prices started to go up. I mean, they sold a couple of bodies for at least £10 to them. Oh, really? So maybe it was Knox's kind of, you're a first-timer here, I'll rip you mm-hmm. off a little bit, because he was a little bit of a conniving young, mm. well, middle-aged man. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, they 16, 16 people they went on to kill and sell they basically what they did was they'd get the victim drunk uh, so they passed out and then they suffocate them Hare would put his hands out or over the victim's nose and mouth and Burke would lay across the upper torso so even if Hare's hands weren't properly covering the mouth the chest couldn't contract and get a breath anyway so they were basically squeezed to death if they weren't suffocated without leaving a mark as well quite clever exactly exactly so there was no signs of a struggle on any of the bodies i think that's why they got paid quite that all the Mm -hmm. bodies went up in price uh yeah so two of the actual cadavers were recognized by Hare's assistants Mary Patterson, who was a local prostitute. Uh, <laughs> so Easy pickings. Yeah, exactly. She was one of her one of the medical students asked Burke and Hare where they where they found her because he seemed to recognise her. I bet he did, dirty boy. <laughs> uh, and and they said that she had uh, died through over drinking. And the second body that was recognised was James Wilson, who was nicknamed him Daft Jamie, but he was known all around the streets of Edinburgh. He had mental health issues, but he was very likeable, he was very inoffensive, and he was taken advantage of, obviously, by these two. But a lot of the students and associates of Knox knew who this person was, and his body was actually dissected without its head. Just yeah. so because so, they were yeah. doing public yeah. dissections and they had a lot of people there, it was just to kind of like keep it incognito. Yeah, it was a bit uh, silly choosing him to kill, though. Really, being as he was a little bit of a local celebrity, it was a bit of a stupid exa- idea. Exactly. I don't know. I don't know. He was apparently chronologically he was the fifteenth. So they're likely getting cocky by this point. Exactly. They think they probably think they're untouchable. They've done fifteen already, yeah. and. One was Elizabeth Haldane, who was down on a look. She has to sleep in the cellar, and they murdered her in a sleep. And then a couple of months later, they actually killed her daughter, Peggy. Yeah. Uh, with the same kind of thing. So they were, I think by this time, they were like, didn't care. Yeah. They got away with it so much, they were kind of untouchable. But unfortunately, Margaret Doherty is where they fell down. So, basically, there was another two lodgers in the house at this point, and they were, in Hare's words, I think, they were becoming a nuisance because they were snooping. Uh, So they paid them to go out the evening that they killed Mary Doherty. 
but then they hid her under the bed that the greys who were these two lodgers had used and when they came back to retrieve a stocking from the bed Burke was very very standoffish he said no you can't go in there they kind of locked the door so when they went out they they got managed to get into the room and found Margaret's body under the bed they went to tell the police but Birkenhead tried to bribe them by offering £10 a week to keep quiet uh, that's now, a lot of money it is a lot of money which is they're getting paid £10 for a body now I don't think they're getting many lodgers that are keeping uh, I, in other words I don't know where they're going to get these this £10 a week from so yeah. I think what they might have been planning was if they were quiet enough they'd be the next two on the list I would say so, yeah. Because £10 a week... I mean, £10 a week nowadays is a lot of money, never mind back then. Yeah. Uh, I think the Greys pretty much knew that's... If, if they it. took it... <laughs> yeah, that would be it. It would be them next. Yeah, definitely. So they, so they went to the police. The police, by the time the police turned up, they'd moved the body and sold it on to Knox, but then they got an anonymous tip-off that the body was actually in Knox's storage. They turned up and found it, and then they were arrested. Yeah, and when they were questioned, their stories were so different. They couldn't agree on anything that the police were sufficiently suspicious. Um, They dragged them in, and um, a warrant was issued for their detention on November 3rd. Um, Now, they called a police surgeon in, to try and determine the cause of death on the body of Margaret Doherty. Um, he he said it was likely she'd been suffocated, but there wasn't enough medical evidence to prove that's actually what happened. Okay. However, on the basis of the assumption that she was suffocated, um, they actually all four were charged with murder. Um, during the time that the trial was going on, people came forward um, with regard to missing persons like um, Mary Patterson's friend, she uh, who she'd been at the house through the night that Margaret was murdered, but she had left earlier, um, lucky escape. And she came forward and she said that, um, you know, they were the last people to be seen with Mary. Um, that increased the suspicion. Apparently, uh, Burke's brother, Constantine, he was seen wearing the trousers of Daft Jamie Wilson. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, like just prancing around in the victim's trousers. Like, I mean, I don't know whether or not he knew that they were James's trousers or like maybe that he was giving them as a gift off Burke or maybe he was in on it. He was never, uh, he was never implicated in the trial. Nobody really knew for sure, but I, I kind of feel like he probably knew yeah, what was be, going on. To be honest with you, if Jamie was so well-known on the Edinburgh streets that someone recognises his trousers, I mean, yeah. you've got to have some pair on you to be walking around in them and, and <laughs> to claim ignorance of the fact. Yeah. Do you think they were like purple stripey ones or something like that? How, how were they so <laughs> individual that they were recognised as his trousers? Unless like it had, I don't know, maybe it had Daft Jamie down the side or something. Yeah. Like in big letters. But... Embroidered into it. Yeah. His name in the back of them. <laughs> yeah, and it's in his name tag, yeah. <laughs> but I, I think Constantine definitely knew what was going on. Definitely. Um, and I mean, his brother just suddenly came into a lot of money. 
and he wasn't really doing anything. Nobody could see. He didn't seem to have a job, and he'd go out late at night and come back the next morning with a tenner in his pocket. And his brother definitely had to know. I mean, he was living with his brother for a while. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's where they murdered Margaret Ducky. They murdered him. Murdered her in his brother's house. They paid the Greys to go and stay at Hare's house that night. So, it seems a little bit far-fetched to me to think that he didn't know what was going on yeah in his own house unless he had a really big house which i doubt yeah yeah um so yeah so so people kept coming forward and and the the list of potential victims grew bigger and bigger and bigger um so the lord advocate at the time who was sir william ray he used a tactic of offering the group look if one of you comes to me with a confession that implicates the others for a conviction you'll be granted immunity now what isn't common knowledge was that he actually only offered this to hair he didn't actually come to the group and say which one of you wants to not be hanged and say, say that the other three did it like because you would just everybody would put their hand up like maybe me of course, um yeah. so yeah so he actually only offered it to hair which is surprising. Yeah, I mean, uh, this, this is one of the things that has always confused me, that Hare turned State Queen's evidence and, and managed to get away, especially if it was because of the choice factor, because I think with Burke, with his upbringing, and Hare yeah. being a wrong gun, I think Burke would have taken it, and I was I've always... I, did, I never knew that. I was always confused about the fact how Hare, who was the scheming little... Yeah. He, he managed to kind of get away with it. You know, I think maybe um, Burke being the, I mean, I, I, I say nicer one of the two, in nice, nice in the loosest sense of the word, I guess. He, it kind of started getting to him, the murders. And I think he had a, it was eaten at his conscience, actually. Um, and it was, he actually said towards the end that he couldn't sleep without a bottle of whiskey every night by his bed. And he was just in a perpetual state of inebriation just to try and cope with the awfulness of what they were doing. So I, I have to wonder if maybe Hare manipulated Burke into saying, yes, I did it. Yeah, with, know, like, a, because he's got a better character. Yes, and yeah. he's kind of easily, yeah. If that that is actually a really good shout there because you can kind of you can you could kind of imagine that he's a little manipulating uncouth little thing, whereas yeah, Burke's I, a stand-up kind of yeah okay it was me I did it I I can't live for myself whereas Hair just kind of pass it off and goes making money. Definitely, I always kind of when I when I picture Hair in my head, I always picture him as you know the the candy canes and lollipops guy from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. <laughs> <laughs> I just think he was just that creepy, horrible guy, and I think Burke had a, a bit more about his character that he knew that what they were doing was wrong. It was, and but by then he was too far into it to to go back. So I think he actually went to his death feeling like. He deserved to die. Yeah, yeah, it was the right thing to do to be hung, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm just actually very surprised that Helen McDougall wasn't executed as well because, I mean, it was, she was clearly implicated in it. You, you can see why um, Hare's wife got away with it because he wasn't legally allowed to testify against her. So there was no way, unless he was convicted, there was no way she was going down. Mm. Um but Helen McDougall kind of got off really lightly. I mean, I, I don't know whether it's maybe, maybe Burke actually just said, you know, yeah, she plied them with drink, but 
I did the killing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at one point, Margaret actually suggested killing Nellie because she was Scottish and she was untrustable. Uh, Yes. But Burke Burke did not. He shied away from that. But if Margaret would have had a way... Oh, she was a nasty piece of work. Hard-faced cow. Indeed. (laughs) Don't like her. But, yeah, she... Helen did... She did help a lot because she she got them absolutely mad drunk and actually margaret doherty did try to leave the house twice that night and helen dragged about like oh no come on we've got more drink we haven't even started the party's not even started yet come back so margaret doherty probably would have got away had helen not kept bringing her back to the house so i guess in a in a roundabout way, Helen was just as much to blame as Burke, even if she didn't do the killing. Yeah, she But I still knew. think she got away lightly. Yeah, she knew what was going to happen. Yeah, yeah. So um, on Christmas Eve, the jury found Burke guilty. Um, and he was told, he was sentenced to death by hanging, and he was told, your body should be publicly dissected and anatomized, and I trust that if it is ever customary to preserve skeletons, yours will be preserved in order that posterity may keep in remembrance your atrocious crimes. And his skeleton actually is on display now. Um, you can see it. You can also see, which is, I don't know who thought of this, it's a bit macabre, um, there was, there's like a, car, a calling card book made out of his skin. I don't know why they... Yeah, apparently, and it was written in his blood. Yes. The first pages or something, it was... uh, Who thought that up? Why? Apparently it was Alexander Monroe who dissected him and then made this book. But why? I I have no idea what the (laughs) outcome of it was and what the thought process was to it, but it is very, very weird... Maybe he needed a new address book and he just got a talking <laughs> point. He kept whipping this. I'll just, can I take your name and phone number? Oh, that's a really interesting address book. You're like, yes, it's made out of Burke. You know Burke. Yeah. The, the Burke. It's made out of his skin and written in his blood. <laughs> wow. I guess at the time people would have been impressed, but nowadays people would be just taking several steps back. Yeah, it's like, yeah. And running for their car. Of course. And you say Burke was the strange one. I'll see you later. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. It's a bit weird. I don't think it was completely necessary. Um, Something did come out, something good did come out of this, though, because um, the murders actually raised public awareness for the need for medical cadavers. I mean, Edinburgh was really making some up-and-coming changes uh, in the study of the body and, and, and medical science. And it really, really made an impact to have these extra cadavers. I mean... Originally, before the um, the Anatomy Act of 1832 was passed, the only bodies were allowed were executed criminals, orphans, and suicide victims. Now, you think of the religious uh, feel at the time. Probably there wasn't a lot of suicide victims yeah. because if you committed suicide, you don't go to heaven. And orphans as well. Like I, I feel again, there might have been maybe people not wanting to dissect an orphan because it was just not nice yeah, for people yeah. to look at. Of course, you know. Of course, yeah. So I think maybe that there was a, a massive shortage of bodies just purely because there weren't a lot of suicide victims and nobody wanted to dissect an orphan, so they were waiting around for people to be hanged. So they actually changed the law um, and. They, they 
passed an act which allowed the dissection of bodies uh, from the local workhouses if the bodies were still unclaimed after 48 hours after death. So this brought in a lot more bodies and actually really helped advance science. So there was a good thing to come out of that. However, there was lots of bad things to come out of that because there was copycats. Um, Although I do say copycats, they were called, I think they were only copycats in the sense that they robbed the name. They were called the London Burkers. Um, But they didn't kill their their victims in the same way that Burke and Hare killed their victims. Yes, they plied them with alcohol and laudanum, uh, which is an opiate derivative. Um, Very addictive. Um, And they they basically plied them with drink and laudanum, waited till they passed out and then they drowned them in a well near where they were located um so they didn't actually suffocate them at all they drowned them um and they they at the time they were working in london that's that's where they were operating is is in london and they started um originally they were body snatchers they were robbing from graves and selling the corpses and actually the leader john bishop he claimed that in the space of 12 years he stole and sold between 500 and 1000 bodies wow think of the money he made gee i know right Uh, so when they kind of supplemented their income from grave robbing and they decided that murdering the victims was the next best course. Burke and Hare did it, you know, that's it's probably a good idea because you get a fresher corpse, blah, blah, blah. Um, so they actually only got caught when they killed um, a 14-year-old Italian boy. And they lured him back to the house, plied him with drink and drugs. Um, and then they left him unconscious and they went out drinking. I should do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess they were hoping that he wouldn't wake up while they were out, but it was a bit of a dumb thing to do because he might have. I mean, for all they know, he might have been an opium addict. He might have been hardened to it and woke up two hours later. Yeah. Woke up like, oh, geez, my head is killing me. I best go home. Then they would have been gutted. But they went out drinking. They left him passed out. They came back. He was still passed out, so they strung him upside down uh, by his feet, head first into the well, and they drowned him. And he actually did wake up at this point, and he struggled a bit. But being being strung up by his feet, he wasn't going anywhere in a hurry. They drowned him. So then they actually took his clothes off and sold the body to the King's College of Anatomy. Uh, They had originally. tried as you said before to sell um a bo- sell the body to a different college who were a bit suspect about it so they moved on the king's college did take the body but uh the anatomist looked at it and thought mm, this body doesn't even look like it's being buried yet this is a little bit suspect and they reported them to the police uh, and eventually two of the three gang members were hanged at newgate on the 5th of December, 1831, and their bodies were taken away for dissection. What goes around comes around. Exactly. Exactly. So I, I don't think they were exactly copycats. They just saw an idea that they thought might have happened, might have uh, worked well, and it didn't. It just worked exactly how it worked for Birkenhead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, I mean, a thousand, 500 to 1,000 bodies is... Uh, he was getting £10 a piece. That's £50,000. Yeah, which is also kind of 
it's weird that he made so much money and nobody questioned him up until that point up until the point of the the, the boy nobody was like I never see him doing honest day's work, but he's an absolute millionaire. <laughs> he's rolling around town in a yeah. gold-plated gold horse and carriage. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. With his shiny shoes and nobody's like, it's weird. I never see him do anything. Never. Odd. Like, it took 12 years for people to go, oh, that's what he was doing. Makes sense, Makes sense now. <laughs> so, yeah. Well... It is really interesting story that, and as well, it's it's led to obviously the medical profession expanding and expanding. Yeah. I mean, I know one of the things to come out of the Anatomy Act of 1832 is Grey's Anatomy, not the TV show. The actual... <laughs> I was going to say, really? <laughs> the, no, no, no. They, they were ahead of, ahead of the time, but not that far ahead. <laughs> Uh, but it was it was actually completed, I think, in 1858. It was started the year after 1833, after the law was passed and they had access to these bodies. It was finished in 1858, I believe, and it is still used today as the handbook of surgeons and physicians. And it was well, I wouldn't say it was all because of Birkenhair, but it's because of that era. It's a shame. Definitely. It's a shame that they had to go through so much of grave robbing and and the macabre that it is but it was a it was a wild time do you think um that everybody at that time was religious because presumably there must have been some people who maybe weren't religious and if they'd maybe passed an act where they'd said, look, if you want to donate your body to science like they do nowadays, that people might have come forward and gone, yeah, sure, I'm cool with that. I, or was it just in general frowned upon and they wouldn't have given anybody that option just purely because of the religious stigma? I, I think it's just more peer pressure. Back, yeah. back in them days, it was, you, you went with the herd, even if... I mean, to be honest with you, like, for religion, it is to keep the poor downtrodden. And so, yeah. so I think only the people who kind of had an education, which you're kind of looking at the aristocracy or the, the certainly the upper class, uh, who, who may have had an inkling that, you know what, it's not really. But again, I don't think they would have put themselves forward just because mm. it goes against their upper class values of having your body cut open and i guess yeah it might put shame on your family of something of something if you're strapped out naked on a gurney being dissected in front of 50 people exactly that's that's kind of the thing it would probably even the aristocracy then it was more from within like the families they don't want to bring shame to it and whereas yeah. the poorer uneducated people i think it was just you know what we'll just follow this book and we'll do exactly what it says and then maybe everything will be great even though I'm working in mud and you know I live I live in a one room house yes nothing's worked out so far but by god I'll keep following the book yes and it's kind of ironic now that there are so many people who are are donating their bodies to science that you actually have to have something quite severely wrong with you something worth studying to actually even be considered because they've just got so many bodies they they can't get through them all yeah it's kind of ironic it is uh, what, what a twist 
that's yeah. that, that it's turned out turned out to be. And I think that's yeah. more that's more with education. Uh, yeah. And free speech. You're allowed to talk out nowadays, aren't you? Right. Whereas back yeah. then, I, I think if you started talking out about religion, you were you were sent for pretty sharpish and asked yeah. a lot of questions about. Yeah. Definitely. But yeah, I think that is everything. I think you're right. Okay, well, thank you very much, Atreya. That was the MO podcast with me, Consumation, and my lovely co-host. Thank you very much. Uh, and we will be back next week. I hope you can join us. Take care. Thanks very much. Have a lovely day. Bye. Bye. Bye.